Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This patient's psychotic, Dr. <laughs> He's not psychotic. You don't like people touching you. He's not psychotic. He's autistic. That clip was from the ABC hit show, The Good Doctor. The series follows a young surgeon with autism, Dr. Sean Murphy. Dr. Murphy's disability presents him with many challenges, but he is also gifted with extraordinary medical talent. The circumstances of The Good Doctor are fictional, but it illustrates that people with all kinds of disabilities are capable of valuable work. And employers are hiring. In recent years, disabled workers' rate of unemployment has been going down, and it shows no sign of stopping. Later in the show, they say everyone's Irish on St. Patrick's Day. If you're from Situate, Massachusetts, that might actually be true. Exploring history and heritage of the most Irish town in America. But first, joining me in the studio, Nicole Mastis, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School's Department of Healthcare Policy and the Director of the National Bureau of Economic Research's Retirement and Disability Research Center. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Tony Wolf, Commissioner of the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. Thank you. And Sonia Malloy, Pharmacy Technician at CVS, living with Myasthenia Gravis. Thank you. I'm so happy to have all of you because it's rare that we <laughs> that we hear good news employment stories, uh, Professor. And I want you to explain exactly what the trend has been because it's not a fluke. Something positive has been happening in the arena of people with disabilities getting hired. That's right. It's it's unexpected, unprecedented, and and it seems to be quite persistent. You see, employment among people with disabilities has only trended downward for decades since, for example, 1988, the employment rate among people with disabilities was about 30 percent among those in, say, their 40s and 50s. By 2012, this was down to 15 percent. Then, all of a sudden, sometime around... 2012 to 2014, that began to shift. And since then, we have seen the first reversal in this downward trend in decades. And to what do you attribute the reversal? Well, the reversal is certainly due to many factors, and we don't fully understand which have been more important, but we do believe that the tight labor market has played a, an important role. Hold on, just, just let me just emphasize that. That means that because so many people are employed and we are in a good economy, I'm using air quotes, you know, employers have to look elsewhere to find workers because a lot of people are already employed. Right. We've mm. been enjoying a very long recovery from a very deep recession. And during that recovery, as the economy has strengthened, 
employers have hired more and more people, and increasingly they are now hiring people who have disabilities as well. Um, what it means, of course, is that employers are finding new ways to engage people with disabilities in the workplace. There have also been some related trends at the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. That program has changed the ways in which it awards benefits, and the kind of net effect of that has been that fewer people are receiving a disability benefit award. We, I, I, th I think the strong economy is, is probably the bigger factor here, but at the same time, the, the social safety net has changed a bit. I want to circle back to that in a bit. Um, that's my guest, Nicole Mastis, associate professor at Harvard Medical School's Department of Healthcare Policy. Um, I'm going to switch over to you now, uh, Tony Wolf, commissioner of the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission, and ask about training, because that's a big part of what you do to make sure that disabled workers are ready for the workplace. And I would imagine if we're looking at more employers hiring, then your training has had to be stepped up as that's, well. That's right. And I think, you know, I really appreciate what Nicole was saying. I also think it's around the partnerships that Mass Rehab has developed with our employers, particularly in Massachusetts, to really begin to look at what are the needs that an employer uh, requires in terms of training. Um, and, I, uh, and I think really having that strong partnership and relationship with the employer is has been essential in mass rehab success in really increasing the employment for people with disabilities. So yes, it's understanding the employer needs. It's being flexible enough to address those employer needs by good training, and then really being able to enrich the workforce with people with disabilities. So I'm going to ask you to answer a question that may seem obvious, but I think it's important for our understanding in this conversation. Who, how do you define disabled? Well, you know, it's really an interesting question. We, we were just talking about what people are comfortable sharing, what people are not comfortable in sharing. And that really has to be a personal decision. Um, what we're saying is people with disabilities that has some limitations that has gotten in the way in their life, either in independence or in going to work. And I think that's what's really important, their functional limitations and what barriers are in the way uh, so that we can address those barriers. So we at Mass Rehab serve all people with disabilities, um, at, but it's really about what are the functional limitations that's gotten in your way and how do we help you identify changing those barriers so that you can have a quality life. And when we say that, the, the range of disabilities is both physical, uh, as people might imagine, but also could be intellectual. Absolutely. Intellectual mm -hmm. and also mental health conditions. 40% mm -hmm. of the individuals that we currently serve now have mental health conditions. Um, and what the employer community is calling it the invisible disabilities. Uh, so they're seeing visible disabilities and invisible disabilities. Um, and how do we really be able to identify and support people so that they're successful in the workplace? Uh, that's my guest, Tony Wolf. She's commissioner of the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. I'm moving over to you, Sonia Malloy, because uh, as a farm tech at CVS, you're living proof that uh, people with disabilities who want to uh, be open about them are being hired and being valued in the workplace. Yes, that is correct. So you're a pharmacy technician at CVS. Um, talk about you know your job and your disability and how you've been able to make all of that work. Okay, yes, first of all, I'm, I am suffering with um, myasthenia gravis that I've had for about 35 years. And I last year went to Mass Rehab to go through the training, the pharmacy tech program, and I graduated and became a pharmacy tech last February. Um, the job is... It's very good. I like it. I'm very pleased with it. I'm happy with the train. I'm happy with the 
you know, turn over to employment. Um, I, my job is based on how I feel. I've been given the opportunity that if I'm not feeling that good, that I can step back and, you know, I can take a break. The employer has been very, very accommodating with me as well as Mass Rehab. When I was going through the training, I had no problems. I mean, they were always there to help me, to guide me. Anytime I needed any extra help, you know, they were there. And I, I cannot say anything less, but I was, I'm very pleased with the services that I received. So why don't you explain what myothenia gravis means in terms of your day-to-day living? Okay, myasthenia gravis is a neuromuscular disease, and it affects people differently. It actually, um, me, I actually, it actually affects every muscle in my body. So my breathing, my limbs, you know, just everything. So it, on any particular day, I could be feeling weak. It could affect my vision. I could have, you know, double vision. So it's, it's, it's kind of really tricky on, on a day-to-day basis. But I've had it so long, so I know how to adjust myself in my day-to-day, you know, living and how to go about with the illness. The thing that I wanted to just pick up from what Tony said and what you're saying is that somebody looking at you, Sonia, would just assume, eh, you know, she. I can't tell anything's wrong. Right. You know, and that's, you know, part of, uh, I think, a, an employer adjustment and an employment adjustment, you know, to people with disabilities that you you can't just look at people and tell. That's that's true because, I mean, I've, I've got that almost all my life, basically, because a lot of people didn't know that I had the disability, disability until I told them that I had it because you would never know. And even by telling somebody that I had, if you don't know exactly what it's about, you don't know how it could affect me in a certain way. So I, I could just be out and still be sick, but I'm still managing to do a day-to-day, you know, my, do my day-to-day living. I'm just, I don't just sit around. So I try to keep myself busy because that helps along with the illness. So a couple of things, um, uh, Professor Masters, and that is uh, it seems that employers, uh, even if it's market forces that have made them take another look, they've realized there are people like Sonia who can do the work. Um, they need some accommodation, but they can do the work. And so why not hire them? That's exactly right. <laughs> why not hire them? And really, you know, the key here is to be uh, willing to provide often some degree of accommodation. And, in a, you know, in our research, we often find that that accommodation rates appear to be very low, surprisingly low. We see people in the workforce without accommodations, and we see people outside the workforce who need accommodations. And we've been trying to understand what, what's the missing piece here. And I my theory is that it often takes a third party like Mass Rehab to come in and help kind of broker that connection between a person who needs an accommodation and maybe an employer who who otherwise wouldn't know exactly what to do or even how to broach the issue. And um, Tony Wolf, uh, is that because there is a, uh, I think it would be a false impression that other employees might feel put upon or not comfortable? Or well, I what? think, again, it's always um, not understanding the issue of disability and, and the lens that people... Uh, manage. I also th- I also want to talk about. I think as we're talking more about an inclusive workforce, uh, that is changing. 
uh, the, the perspective and the lens from employees as well as employers. Um, and I think that is part of the effort that I think we're also seeing, is that when we talk about an inclusive workforce, we're making sure that includes people with disabilities. Um, and so I think the whole arena in the workforce is really changing. The culture of the workforce is really changing. And I think employees that are in the workforce also understand that the workforce is changing and that they too need to accommodate to a wide range of individuals. Um, and I, that to me is very exciting. The other thing I wanted to bring up is that there seems to be a wider group of employers. There was always, it seems to me, sort of a, a, a small co- cohort of employers that were a little bit more open about hiring disabled workers. But now we got, I'm not saying CVS is just coming to the party, but I'm saying that CVS is not a name you might have thought of in, in the old days. Uh, but yet there are, seems to be more employers, as, to your point. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think the larger employers are incredible models. All right. And so they're really pushing the paradigm as far as I'm concerned. A CVS, I can name a host of other employers that large employers that are saying it's time to be inclusive of, of a workforce that really embraces our communities. And that includes people with disabilities. And that to me, again, is about really strategic thinking, because we're seeing, as, as, as we heard earlier, that the numbers are changing in the workforce. Uh, the workforce is getting older, uh, so changes are happening. And so why not think about an untapped resource like people with disabilities and really make sure they're part of your inclusive workforce? So I want to circle back, um, Professor, because I'm not quite clear about um, where the disabilities benefits how that impacts both hiring and um, maybe impacts not hiring. I don't, I'm not quite mm-hmm. clear about it. And you mentioned earlier that it's changed. So is that for the better? Maybe you can give me just a brief understanding of, of how it works. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a bit hard to say. So normally people, people would, um, people would apply for disability benefits when they're no longer working. So this might be someone who has tried to find a job that could accommodate them um, or, or someone who simply does not have any residual capacity to work. They apply for benefits and they may or may not receive them. Many people don't receive them on their first, uh, their first review um, and then they appeal. Um, and these appeals can take quite a long time and, and ultimately they may or may not receive the benefits but the you know the reality is by the time they get that disability decision, many people have been out of the labor market for a very long time, and that's hard to come back after that. So, what what has happened is that there are simply fewer awards for disability benefits being made now, which means that people are are you know are not have they, they there's simply less access to those benefits in a way than there was before. Which is the, the the importance of training, as we mentioned. So, Sonia, if you hadn't been able to go to um, the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission and get training, wh- where would that have left you? Because you obviously can do the job. You're doing it. <laughs> well, um, I actually I was going to go to um, go to school, college for it, and then I had decided. I said I forgot. I had gone through mass rehab prior, some years prior. So I said, let me check with Mass Rehab again. And then when I went, they didn't actually have the CVS program at the time, but then as I was applying, it happened to come back up. But I, I would have just gone to school and you know done, and did it through going to college. So you would have been able to figure that out, but uh, yes. you can understand that some other people might not have had the same advantage. And I can definitely understand that because I can understand people would, 
disabilities, I know that they, they can get frustrated. Mm-hmm. So, and that can make them just want to give up. And I'm so glad that I have the mentality that I've learned to keep going and to be strong and to, you know, just say that I'm not going to give up, just seek help. It's because the help is there. It's, MRC, the help is there. Mm-hmm. It's definitely there. How does it? How are you feeling about working? Because um, um, what I read is that, um, as as uh, Professor Nicole was just saying, you know, people give up after a while of sitting around. Then you've, you're out of the workplace, and you feel like, oh my God, I, I don't have any skills in which I could even apply for work. And you start to you know feel bad about yourself. But but to be able to be employed and be working at your optimum uh, pace, whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, it seems to me to be quite. Uh, a positive. Yeah, uh, yes it is. I mean, cuz I I feel that, you know, when I was out of work, I I wasn't just sitting around. I was keeping myself busy. I was doing things like with my mother and my grandmother. I was still keeping myself busy, so I wasn't just sitting around. So my mind was always doing something. And so it wasn't hard for me to get back into doing you know, going to work. Going on a schedule, yeah, being go, on a going schedule. schedule cuz mm-hmm. I was still mm-hmm. always on the schedule. So that timely Manner wasn't wasn't a problem for me. Mm-hmm. It just the doing the just being in the workforce and doing the the actual job itself. How are your fellow um, employees interacting with you as they uh, as uh, CVS your employer has made accommodations when when necessary when you have episodes. But what about your fellow employees? Are they in a new space now where, as Tony says, everybody is accustomed to an inclusive workplace or more open to it? Um, I actually find it very comforting. They, they've been very good and very accommodating with me. And, you know, when I come in, they ask me how I'm doing, how I'm feeling. I am actually the oldest person in the pharmacy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually, you know, I found it to be very good. Everybody, it's not a really big, you know, pharmacy, you know, but everybody seems to be welcoming to me. And they, they do understand that I do have the disability. I don't condone on that, oh, you know, I have a disability because they, they, they wouldn't even know if I didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. But everybody seems to be very welcoming and they, they help me out. So I, I'm enjoying it. I really am. Oh, that's good, Sonia. Um, Tony Wolf, uh, talk about the, the disability benefits in the way that uh, uh, Professor Nicole Meisters has and how it's impacted your work yeah. at the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. So I think one of the biggest challenges is that people's fear of, of going off their benefits is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there are very a few incentives for people to really go off their benefits other than their desire to really want to work and be part of the community and part of a workforce. And so... Well, could part of that be fear that you wouldn't find work, too? Well, I think it's fear for sure. Mm -hmm. And I also think that um, there are not a lot of incentives Mm -hmm. uh, for people. So I'll give you an example. At a certain number of hours per working, you will then get penalized, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. to be because you're fearful that you're going to lose your benefits. I can't tell you the number of people we've talked to to really encourage them to take the raise that they got in their from their employer because they did such a great job, but they were fearful of what it meant to, from their benefits. So I'm very proud to say that the governor is pulling a workforce group together to look at what's called the cliff effect, which is what are the some of the disincentives that happens, uh, unfortunately, for people, like food stamps, like looking at Social Security, like some other issues that may deter people from increasing their wor- their number of hours or accepting their increase in their wages and going back to work. So that, to me, is very exciting that Massachusetts is looking at what's called the cliff effect. 
Um, are employers reaching out to you now um, in ways that didn't happen, say, a few years ago? It's very exciting. I can't yeah. say enough. I've been in the workforce for a very long time in terms of focusing on people with employment, with disabilities. And certainly this particular labor market is really exciting um, because employers are really looking. But I really also want to say something around the disability community. And I think because of the nature of inclusivity, people are more uh, willing to share their story. Mm. All right. More willing. And that to makes say, a difference. It makes a huge difference mm-hmm. so that people can understand. You know, as Sonia was saying, she, she has an invisible disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and she in the past might have been frightened to say, I need accommodations. Mm-hmm. And now that's changing. So there I think there's multiple things that are happening in, in the workforce. That's really a very positive trend for people with disabilities. And how are uh, accommodations being thought of? Uh, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about you know, maybe there was an adjustment that had to be made for some employers. But now, you know, I'm just thinking about in your normal course of of work, uh, you know, maybe somebody has to have a shortened work week. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. But you know what I mean? There's more accommodations in general in the workplace around people's lifestyles. Not the same thing as disability. I just don't want anybody to write me. But I understand that. But I'm just saying that we're not, it's it's not so rigid as it used to be, at least in most workplaces. That's Does correct. that help? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Um, and I think people are, are, again, willing to say, I really need this. And I still want, want to do my fair share of work. Um, and so I think the whole environment of what's happening in the workforce is, is lighter, if you will. Um, and that is very exciting. And I think, as, as the professor said, these are not high-cost accommodations, all right? These are low-cost accommodations for people. Uh, and it, should, it can take something so small to make someone so successful. Um, professor Nicole Masters, so to keep this trend going in the right direction, what needs to happen? Well, more and more employers uh, just need to be willing to get out there and make those accommodations and consider workers that they haven't considered in the past, not just people with disabilities, but older workers, um, as Tony mentioned. Um, You know, there are a lot of people who would work if given the chance and if the job could just be tailored a little bit to meet their particular needs. We see this we see this in survey data that over half of people who aren't working tell us that they would work if the right position could be created for them. Give me an example them. of something that just is so frustrating because you can see that a small tweak would make the difference. Well, you know, a, a big one for for well there's many, but one, you know, one is just a little bit of flexibility in hours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could you um, have some adjustments in hours on days when you're having a flare-up in your condition, for example. Um, another another thing can be even as small as access to a small amount of paid sick leave. Hmm. And that can be a little bit more costly for employers, but that too enables somebody to, you know, be sick and come back and still have a job and and be have the security, the income security while while they're sick. Um, so that you know, those are those are two examples. These are often not, you know, often we think of accommodation as being purely physical accommodations, modifications to buildings or or to a desk, but um, but oftentimes it's it's something far far simpler. Is there more, um, Sonia? And you can you can uh, um, 
uh, pat yourself on the back a little bit on this on this answer is, do you think that um, people who are in the in employment arena who are disabled just come with a, just a little bit more enthusiasm, a little bit more because you know how hard it is, how tough it is out there in the world to have a job and be disabled and to get hired? Uh, yes, I think I think mm-hmm. so. And I think from for the most part that when you come with that genuine attitude that, you know, I know that I'm here and I have a job to do, that you get that job done. I mean, I, I just want to say that it's, it's, it's not how you, it's, it is how you do the job, and it might not be how quick you do the job, as long as you get the job done. Sometimes it might take me a little bit slower to do it, but I, I, but I get the job done and I do it correctly. So that makes a difference, and, and my pharmacy manager, she understands that, and she, she's excited that, you know, I give my all when doing the job. Because I like I actually I started with um, CBS last February. I actually had to leave for three months in May. I had um, heart surgery, mm. so I had no problem coming back. I mean, they were welcoming while I was out. They t- they told me you know take my time. This was I mean unexpected, but they said take my time, come back, and you have your job. I mean, I mean I was like so I was like so excited like. You know, because I wasn't expecting to have to go out for heart surgery, but I came back in three months. Everything was fine, and I've been working ever since. That's got to feel good. It it feels very good. <laughs> yes. And you're making a great contribution in 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 the work that you do, so that feels good too. I imagine. Yeah. Uh, yes, it it does. Because I mean, when I'm up there and I'm, you know, taking care of patients when they come to pick up their prescriptions, I understand. I don't know what that person's going through because mm. they could be going through something, but I don't know what they're going through. Any, any type of situation. So I, I give them my smile and I give them all of, you know, what I need to give them to make them happy at that counter. That's my guest, Sonia Malloy. She is a pharmacy technician at CVS um, living with myasthenia gravis and uh, being a great employee at CVS. They're excited about having you, too. Um what is it? Is there now a whole other mindset now that we have seen the trends going? They seem to be stabilized. Uh, we don't know where those disability benefits are impacting and where they're going to go. But it just doesn't look like there's going to be a reversal. It seems as though now that we are talking about inclusive workplace in a broader sense um, and that employers are happy with the employees that they have hired, that there's no reason for this to go back. There should be more hiring than in this arena. That's right. I, I really do think that's possible. And, you know, one thing that's really encouraging here and really, I think, underscores the power of this change that we're seeing is that we are now even seeing increasing numbers of people who've been receiving disability benefits exiting the program for successful work. So just as an example, there were about 30,000 of these exits in 2012, 2013. Um, In 2017, there were over 50,000. I mean, that's just a tremendous increase. And what it tells you is that people with disabilities are seeing opportunities in in new ways, and employers are making those opportunities. When you first start seeing this trend, were you skeptical? Did you think it was a fluke? What did you think? Well, I had been hearing things from employers and great examples of of people who were who were, you know, 
encountering new kinds of opportunities. And so in some ways, I I wasn't surprised, but what I was surprised by was just how big it is and how persistent it seems to be. People often ask, well, you know, what about the next time we we go into a recession? Um, You know, does that, will this all kind of go away? And, And, you know, we could lose some ground, certainly. Recessions can tend to do that. But we didn't see this sort of run up this increase in employment in any of the prior recoveries from recessions in the past. So, you know, I I do think there's a part of this that really is different and new and will persist. I wonder if there's also going to be uh, another reframing of um, getting older, because the the stats also say that more older people have disabilities, um, wherever they may be uh, physically or uh, intellectually or um, or mental health-wise. And so that that means you have to reframe how you think about older people in the workplace as well, Tony Wolf, right? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> That's ab- absolutely correct. And I think, um, you know, it, it's different when all of a sudden it's your mom or your dad, right, um, or your aunt. And I think that's helping blending the thinking about disabilities. And and Sonia just said, in her er- arena, she's the oldest person right. there. I mean, you're about <laughs> 20, right? But <laughs> I'm looking <Yes>. at you. <laughs> but still, that's, a, that's, a, that's here's a living example of that. Um, and we've already seen in Massachusetts so many uh, downtrends for older people. But this is an uptrend, and it could potentially uh, put people on a better footing for housing, for how they're able to take care of themselves, for retirement. By the way, that's part of what you look at as well, Professor? That's right. That's uh-huh. right. It's exactly right. And it, it benefits people individually, and it benefits the U.S. economy as well. There are so many benefits to, to um, you know, tapping into the, these, this additional group of people, whether they're older, whether they're people with disabilities who want to work. Now, is Massachusetts better on the trends, on the on the good trend, or about the same? Because it's happening all across the country. It's not just in this state. But I'm just wondering where we, do you know, Tony, where we are in the... On so, the I, I, I can, you know, I think that we are always seen as a leader mm-hmm. in, in the country. Um, and I think that we've always have had a very strong, rich disability community that has been very vo- vocal. Uh, which really has cha- has over time changed the thinking. Um, and I think that's here to stay, which is the good news. Um, you know, I just was at a youth network forum and folks are working really hard in the high schools to do a disability history curriculum, hmm. right? Hmm. To begin to think about really helping younger people understand the disability history and the movement is just amazing to me. So that thinking means then people will see, again, people with disabilities in an, even in a more enriched light. So I think Massachusetts is leading the path. Sonia Malloy, make the case to employers who may be listening and saying, I don't know, I have never, I'm not going to consider hiring somebody disabled. Um, talk to them and at, right now and say why they should be looking at um, the cohort of people who are disabled, but obviously are willing to work. I think that in employers, you just need to, you know, just take a look at the employees and that you're going to hire because you don't know what you're going to get until you get there. And, and you could be, you know, turning a, a good person away just because they have a disability doesn't mean that they're not going to be a good worker. And most of the time, I mean, most of the time they are because they just need that extra help and they just need to know that, they do have a job that they can go to and something that's going to be accommodating to their needs. Same thing for you, Professor. How do you make the case? So 
I actually have begun thinking far more about, well, let's not focus on what the disability is, but what are the abilities? Mm. And we're we're doing new surveys. We're Mm. developing new surveys. And here's an example. We have a survey that we recently did where we were surveying people about 52 different types of abilities. So maybe there's a disability on one or two of those, but there's 50 other abilities that might just match perfectly to a particular job. So you have to kind of look at both the profile of the the individual's whole profile of abilities and then think about, well, what is this job demand? What are the most important things here? And is there a match? I think this sort of, you know, disability, you know, disability, no disability um, paradigm is, 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 has kind of been kind of getting in the way of that. And, and the advancements in technology means that, you know, there are some niche areas that could definitely benefit from people with a very specific skill that could be matched in that way. That's exactly right. I, I don't, I mean, I think technology has played some role in, in the growth we've seen, but I don't think we've yet seen the full force of that power, which means that's another area where we could yet see more gains in employment that are driven by technologies that help people, uh, you know, do jobs that before maybe they didn't have the right ability to do. But now, you know, uh, uh, an assistive technology or, or um, some other change in the way we do things makes that feasible. Last word from you, Tony, make the case. Well, I, I think I can't echo enough what the professor said. It's about strengths. That's the bottom line. And I think what certainly, uh, as Sonia has indicated, people are incredibly resilient. And that's what you want in a workforce. You want people that are resilient because it's constantly changing, the workforce. It's, the needs are constantly changing in the, work, uh, in, the, in the employer community. And so you want people to be resilient. And I think that's clearly uh, one of the, the selling points about people with disabilities. And just, again, echoing, it's about strengths. Absolutely correct. Well, thank you all for joining me. So nice to have a good news story. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole Mastis is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School's Department of Healthcare Policy and the director of the National Bureau of Economic Research Retirement and Disability Research Center. Tony Wolf is the commissioner of the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. And Sonia Malloy is a pharmacy technician at CVS living with myasthenia gravis. Coming up, Ireland is more than leprechauns, shamrocks, and shenanigans. The people of Situate, Massachusetts, America's most Irish town, know that better than anyone. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. You're listening to Clonod, 1976 recording of Dulaman, a traditional Irish folk song recounting a conversation between two Irish seaweed gatherers. Seaweed is central to Irish history and culture. The Irish have found multiple uses for it, including in medicine and beer. 
Seaweed is also the link between Ireland and Scituate, Massachusetts, and it is part of the reason the coastal city is known as the most Irish town in America. Joining me now to talk about the history of the Irish in Scituate and how the town is reconnecting with its roots today, Brenda O'Connor, the chairman of the Scituate West Cork Sister City Committee. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you. John Sullivan is also a member of the Scituate West Cork Sister City Committee. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation to be here. Oh, I'm delighted. And Bob Chesia is a Scituate Historical Society trustee. Hello, Bob. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Well, I am delighted because we're celebrating uh, the green. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day celebration. This is great. And I imagine people are saying, most Irish town in America? Really? Not Boston, not New York, not Chicago. Brenda, they're challenging you, but you've got the data. I do, in courtesy of the United States Census. The most recent census showed us 47.5% of situate residents are either Irish-born or of Irish heritage, and we are indeed the most Irish town in America. And you're third generation. Tell me when your folks came. Many of my people came during the famine which is true of uh, many Irish. Uh, I had grandparents who came most recently in the late 1800s, but they started, uh, my family started in 1846 to come here. And John Sullivan, you too, long roots in Situate. Yes, I was born and raised there, but uh, my Irish side of the family came over as far back as the 1860s when my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother came from County Galway to Boston. And you just made your way back and just continuing the legacy. Well, what's interesting is I didn't grow up with a lot of awareness of my Irish heritage, but um, once I started doing genealogy, I became more and more interested in finding out the histories and was able to find out where my family was from. And although my father and most of his siblings never made it back to Ireland, I'm one of five in my family who have returned many times to Ireland. So it's, it's, I'm fortunate in that I've been able to do that. So, Bob Chessia, you have a little Mayflower and Irish history personally in your background, but you know about this seaweed connection. So tell me a bit about your legacy, and then let's talk about the seaweed connection. Um, I had a great-grandmother that was Irish, and I have, um, through Ancestry.com, seven links to the Mayflower so far. The most direct is... Uh, Peregrine White, who was actually the first child born in Plymouth Colony. Hmm. And his father passed away, his mother remarried, and that was the first marriage in Plymouth Colony. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But here you are, uh, knowledgeable about the Irish history of Situate. <laughs> yes. Um, I was an Irish mosser as a, a teenager, as my, was my father. And what and does that mean? That means that you would go out in a dory two hours before low tide, and you would rake Irish moss off the rocks, and you could do probably four hours, then you would sell it, it would be processed. And it was used for a multitude of uses. Primarily um, beer making until prohibition, but it's in cosmetics, it's in uh, ice cream, really a lot of products. We have school children that come to the uh, Maritime Irish Mossy Museum, we always ask them, have you ever had Irish moss in your mouth? And they'll go, no! And we'll go, did you brush your teeth? They go, yeah, well, that's what it's in. <laughs> hmm, interesting. 
So long history there. Um, Brenda, I want to circle back to you because everybody says you have worked overtime to make this connection with Ireland here and America, the descendants and the ancestors and also the original folks over uh, in the home country. And as a result, you've got this West Cork sister city connection going on. We do. Well, actually, it was the Board of Selectmen that felt we already had two connections, one a sister city in France and uh, where our students go and, and are immersed in French, and we have a relationship with a town in Spain where our Spanish students go. And they said, if we're the most Irish town in America, we should have a connection with Ireland. So the word went out, and among those who applied to be our sister city, we chose uh, West Cork. And it's actually made up, I, I hesitate to say 39 towns, but it's very close to that. Some of the towns have 40 people or 400 people. Uh, so we needed the entire area of West Cork to match with us. And uh, it has many similarities to Situate. Uh, it's on the Atlantic coast. It's fishing area. They have some of the same problems with rising tides and climate change that we do. One of the most fascinating things, I think, is that Clonakilty, one of the larger towns, has been named the first autism-friendly town in Ireland. And when we go in June, we're going to be studying that to learn what we could bring back to Situate. And that's my guest, Brenda O'Connor. She's the chairman of the Situate West Cork Sister City Committee. John, you said when you grew up, you weren't quite as aware of the Irish history and appreciating it as much as you did. But going back, being there, you really see it and feel it now. Well, yeah. I mean, growing up in Situate, mm -hmm. I learned very little about Irish history. The only thing I learned in the schools, I went to public schools all the way through, was about what was called the famine. But there was never a famine in Ireland. It was the failure of one crop. As I started reading more and learning more, I realized there were many things that I was not told about the history. And that, in turn, caused more doors to open and greater curiosity. Growing up in Situate, there were Irish everywhere, so you took it completely for granted. And it was only as I got older, I appreciated how unique it was to grow up in a town like that. And I think now, this is a bit of giving back a point of information about what Brenda said, is that when the town asked for volunteers, people who would be interested in this committee, it was the largest outpouring for any committee they've ever had. And they interviewed a number of people over a series of evenings, and they selected the folks on the committee. And uh, it's a great, great group of people who are enthused about strengthening the connections between West Cork and Situate, and vice versa. I want to talk. have both of you tell me what it feels like to when you're there and you sense that connection, that ancestral connection, because you've, you've both spoken about, you know, that specialness you, you a bit about through the committee, uh, Brenda and John, you're sort of reopening up to, to that connection. What's that like standing there and realizing, wow, my folks came from here and look what we created in the United States? It feels very much like being at home. I was fortunate. My uh, great-grandfather left Inishannon in County Cork in 1852 when he was one year old, and I knew him. He didn't die until 1946, and which is giving an indication of how old I am. And my uh, grandparents I knew very well. They came from Roscommon, and my grandmother, was. she came when she was 13, 
a remarkable woman, but at any rate, uh, she used to sit and talk about Ireland and tell me about her life. And she taught me my first two Irish songs, The Wearing of the Green and God Save Ireland. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I stepped foot on Ireland, it felt very much at home. And I think, like many people who have heritage, you feel the pull of both. I'm fully American, but I am of Irish descent. Same thing for you, John? Well, it's very hard to put into words, but there is a familiarity of temperament. There's something about the makeup of, of the Irish, and you feel a connection, and it's very hard to put into words, but there's a connection there that is immediate that continues throughout your time there. And following up with Brenda said, I'll never forget the first time I went to Ireland, standing, my great-grandfather was dirt poor, all my ancestors who came to America were dirt poor. Most of them could neither read nor write. But I remember standing on the edge of a bog, looking out across the fields and saying, this is what my great-grandfather saw when he was a boy. And what a powerful thing it was to do that. And I remember thinking, every American, no matter where your ancestors are from, should try to reconnect to where your ancestors live because it's an experience that stays with you for the rest of your life. That's my guest, John Sullivan. He's also a member of the Situate West Cork Sister City Committee. Now, Bob Chessia, what does it mean historically to be the most Irish city in the U.S.? I mean, that the connection that's made there, the recognition of the history and the linkages, well, what can you tell us about you know, why it's important for us to remember this? Well, when the Irish first came to America, they were persecuted, basically in Boston. No, Irish need not apply was not uncommon. But when they came to Situate, Situate at that time was less apt to pass judgment. And a lot of people that were in trouble early times with the separatists in Plymouth or the Puritans in Boston came to Situate for that particular reason. So the Irish came and Irish moss, which meant they started an industry that no one had before. So they actually brought jobs and nobody could do it at that point. No they, one could do it. They no. knew how to, they they knew how to master how to, that. They knew right? how to do it. Yeah. So they showed up in Situate, and they started on Third Cliff. And times were bad. However, Daniel Ward, who was the one that started the industry, had a stroke of good luck. They had a ship, the Forest Queen, that founded off Third Cliff where he was. And wreckage washed up on shore. Uh, liquor, furs, cochineal, beetles, indigo, so on and so forth. So he made some money from that. And he eventually built a house on First Cliff, which at that time was probably one of the worst places to live in Situate, which now is one of the best places. They put a bridge and you can actually get there now. Mm. And he started bringing Irish to Situate. At one time, there was 100 families that were involved in the mossing industry. So we're talking about not only uh, building new lives, but building new lives with, with purpose and feeling good about yourself because you were just coming from a place that wasn't so welcoming, and now you have a welcoming community. Oh, absolutely. Mm. The first Catholic mass, mass at Situate was in uh, Daniel Ward's home on First Cliff. Mm. Our um, archivist for the town of Situate, Mary Porter, grew up in that house, which is so it's a close connection with a lot of us. So just so people understand how successful that mossing uh, industry was, I read that one at that time could make, you know, $400 a month, which is like 9600 I mean, this is a lot of money back in, you know, the 19th century for people. So that was really quite a successful industry for the people who came over and were looking for some place to, to make a home. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you didn't have to be Irish to moss. Yeah. My father was an Irish, and he mossed. And it was what you would call a cottage industry, the whole family was involved. Hmm. So the uh, daughters and the 
wives would be on the beach, and if it rained, when you were curing your Irish moss, it would ruin it, so we had to cover it up. That was the Petticoat Brigade. The men would be out smoking their pipes, Irish mossing at low tide, and the women would be taking care of the moss on the beach. Well, this is all history that we should know, absolutely. And that's what you all are involved with at different points through the sister committee and also through the museum, uh, Bob Chessia. I want to talk to you about passing this down to future generations. I mean, you all are all of a certain age. <laughs> and so, John, are you looking at the young people who may kind of take the Irish history for granted and maybe are waking up to realize it's really quite something to treasure? Well, what is what I found fascinating in my own family, among my cousins, is that all of my cousins have more interest in Ireland and Irish history than their own parents. And, and I think culturally, it was very hard for the people who fled Ireland during the Great Hunger and after, because they didn't want to leave, but they had to leave to make a better life, most of them. And so they wouldn't talk about what they had left. But as generations have progressed, there's more interest and more curiosity in, about finding about the home place. So I know, you know, my nephews, my daughter have been to Ireland several times. Matter of fact, we're going to be going again this June. And so there is going to be a passing of the baton, if you will, to the next generation. And Brenda and I are neither the oldest nor the youngest members of our group either. There's quite a, quite a range of ages. Mm -hmm. And to me, that demonstrates that a myriad of ages are interested in strengthening the connection between Ireland and America. Well, one thing, Brenda, you've got the Irish consulate coming. We you do. know, I mean, that's what you get if you're the most Irish town. <laughs> you you get people uh, on high coming down to, to, to talk to you. We do. Uh, <laughs> the Irish Consul General of Boston uh, is coming with a minister, an Irish government minister, and they're going to have a fireside chat. And we've invited everyone in the town. It is free. But also, one of the things we're doing for the next generation learning is we are having student exchanges hmm. between Situate and West Cork. And our committee, our role in that is to offer scholarships that as affluent a town as Situate is, there's still people that have challenges. And we want to make sure any Situate student who wishes to go will have their way paid. One of the uh, things we're going to do with the students going to Ireland is we're going to have a few little history classes before they go, and we're even going to have a small Irish language class so that they can say hello and thank you and all of that. Are they Irish. responding? Are they enjoying this? Well, we have. The school is very interested. As a matter of fact, we presented our plan for student exchanges, and it was received very well. And when the uh, delegation was here from West Cork, one of the things we did was have them tour the schools and the students put on a performance and they weren't even out of the building when they said student exchange is our number one priority. Mm -hmm. So it is getting full backing on both sides. And I think there will be a great turnout of children. What do you think your ancestors, the one that came over 
so when they were quite so young, what, what would they be thinking now? <laughs> I think they would be very, very proud. They always kept the love of Ireland. Uh, they were very productive citizens of the United States, but they kept that love for Ireland. And to see it several generations later, I think, would make them very proud. We actually visited the home where my grandmother was born. It was a thatched cottage. We saw her brothers and sisters, so I knew them. And uh, it was very exciting. Um, Bob Jesse, just like John said when he grew up and he sort of took it for granted because everywhere you looked in Situate, you know, everything was Irish, so what? You know, I didn't really get it then. What can you say as to people who live outside of Situate? I mean, Situate is the most Irish town, but it's kind of a symbol of why in Massachusetts particularly, we celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day big. You know, why this should be more than sort of a, yeah, it's just another holiday, but there's more to it than that. Well, uh, the Irish are a good example for anyone that comes to this country because approximately 2 million people emigrated from Ireland or died of starvation or disease during the hunger. So they came to Massachusetts, Boston, Situate, wherever, and they were persecuted here. But they basically figured out how not to be persecuted, which was through the ballot box. So they decided they would vote. And they voted Irish people into office. Big time. James Michael Curley. (laughs) James Michael Curley was elected one term while he was in jail. (laughs) But he had a quote that I think is kind of interesting. The day of the Puritan has passed. The Anglo-Saxon is a joke. A new and better America is here. He had a summer house in Situate, and one of the first things he did, he put shamrocks on his shutters. And the Irish Riviera originally was that section of Minot in Situate. They had a church in the summer. The Tobins were there. Mm -hmm. And they made people accept them. Story of triumph. It was, yes. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. John, John, how do you answer that question? Well, it's, it's very interesting. For example, Joseph Kennedy wanted to move to Cohasset, but they said, no, we don't want you at the country club. This is someone who later came to be the ambassador to England. And that's one of the reasons he ended up moving his family down to Hyannisport. So there was always prejudice there. My own great-grandfather was told, he asked if he could take off Christmas Day. He was the father of eight children, and he was told, you can take off Christmas Day, just don't expect your job back when you return. And to follow up on what Bob said, the Know Nothing Party in the 1840s targeted the Irish because really they were the first group of immigrants who were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So they faced terrible, terrible bias. They burnt down the Ursuline convent. That was in Somerville, I think? Charlestown. Charlestown, Charlestown. excuse me, yes. And these are stories that weren't really told. To Bob's point... But now they can be. Yes, Mm -hmm. the Irish have persevered through incredible Mm -hmm. adversity. One of the things that I had mentioned to Brenda I wanted to reference is something that I only learned about recently, which were the penal laws that were imposed on the Irish. Have have you ever Mm -hmm. heard of them? Yes, yes. I mean, this is an example. These laws were enacted by the occupying government. Irish Catholics were forbidden to receive an education, to speak their native Irish language, to enter a profession, vote, hold public office, practice their religion, purchase land, own a horse of greater value than five pounds, be the guardian to a child, educate their own children, or send a child abroad to receive an education. This was all in their native land. These laws were enacted, and anybody who's of Irish descent, our ancestors, persevered through all of that. 
So how does the most Irish town in the country celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Wallet Hub, which is a website, just came out with a list of the 219 best cities for St. Patrick's Day celebrations. It had Boston as fourth. Boston's really quite upset about this, as you can imagine. But, you know, Situate's not on that list. I don't think they know you're the most Irish. They don't. Uh, They don't know it. But how do you celebrate St. Patrick's Day? We actually have an Irish Heritage Month. One day is not enough for us. (laughs) Because you're the most Irish. (laughs) We are. And we have a plethora of activities. Uh, We have Catherine Shannon, Dr. Catherine Shannon, who is a retired professor, is giving a series of lectures, and she is just magnificent. Those are free of charge. We have a corned beef cabbage dinner. Friday uh, before uh, St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have uh, tea and Irish bread at the Senior Center, that we try to go across all generations. We are gifting the schools with books for our elementary children for read-alouds. We are having uh, the Consul General, as we uh, said, uh, come for a fireside chat. Uh, We have the parade, and we will be a presence in the parade. And I don't think it's it's too early to announce. Each year we have a mayor and a Rose of Situate, and I am going to be the Rose of Situate this year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. that it's really an honor for the committee that they're recognizing the work the committee is doing in town. So we're trying to educate the town on cultural life of Irish, and they are trying to do the same in Ireland to explain who we are. And uh, we're trying to hit all across the generations, and it's taking us a whole year to do this. We do activities all year long, but we really concentrate on March. All right. Uh, Last word from you, John Sullivan. Well, I want to, first of all, thank you for the invitation to be here. This is a, it's a great treat to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about, first of all, the history of the town and also the history of the Irish, not just in Situate, but in America. So I want to thank you for that. And you've got an open invitation to come down anytime. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Bob Chessia. Well, I'd like to invite everyone to Situate to come to our Maritime Irish Mossy Museum, which is a little hidden gem. We've had um, news organizations come down before, and they just can't believe what's in there. And it's open on Sundays, and it's well worth the trip. And when you're there, you can enjoy the rest of Situate. Well, my question is, if you're the most Irish town in the United States, is the luck of the Irish in full display if you go to Situate? Absolutely. It is. It is. You got it. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Brenda O'Connor is the chairman of the Situate West Cork Sister City Committee. John Sullivan is a member of the Situate West Cork Sister City Committee. And Bob Chessia is a trustee of the Situate Historical Society. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Then we do a mangala, do a mangala, and we